Thank you for coming out to worship together this morning. And those in the gym, we welcome you as well. Those online, we welcome you as we are um, just hybrid gathering, right, of God's church and God's people. Um, today we, we start a new series. And this is, a um, as I've been studying, a weightier series for me. A uh, weightier series is the message of it for me. And so um, we're just going to pass some of that along, you know, share the, share the burden of that a little bit. Um, this morning we sang a song, No One Higher, and the, the, the part of the chorus is, there is no one higher, no one greater, no one like our God. Amen? Amen. There is none more able, Christ our Savior, great and glorious. And I know that we believe that. I know that that is what we stand on as a church, that that is what believers stand on. But isn't it amazing how it's so easy to bring other things into that as part of our loves and part of our desires and part of what's important to us? And, and, and it's easy to, as we live life, to have things that crowd into that, that are those thorns that Jesus talked about with the soils, and that, that try to grab our love, try to grab our heart. John Calvin described it that our hearts are idol factories that we are really good at creating idols, at following idols. And we'll talk about that a little bit later today. And so as we come to this series, and this whole year we're talking about undistracted, not letting things pull us away from the mission of the gospel, what God wants us to do. On the board, we said to seek God and do His work. That's our main thing. And so if we're to say, I want to be undistracted from that, This series is about looking at some of the distractions, identifying them, and then kicking them out of our lives. And that's my goal for this series. It's called Deep Idols. We're going to look at a variety of idols. Today we'll look at a general idea of idols and idolatry and an overview in Scripture. But then I want to dig into some of the underlying factors that contribute to our desire for other things, that contribute to our idols and really that contribute to the sin that we struggle with in our lives. I want to put up a picture of of a place that we took a group to. We've taken a group to several times. This is a place called Gezer. There we go. The other slide, Gezer at night. But okay, this is Gezer. And it's in Israel. And it's it's one of the um, fortified cities that would protect one of the valleys into Jerusalem. So it's between the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem. And at this site at Gezer, they've unearthed this area. And and Gezer, you have to understand, this was a, a city that was conquered by Joshua. And so it was taken over by Joshua. David fought the Philistines here. Um, this city was given to Solomon as a dowry. So um, actually, king of Egypt wanted Solomon to marry his daughter. Here, have a city. So those of you getting married, um, think about giving a city. And... Um, this was also defined as a Levitical city that was supposed to be a place of worship of God. Worship of Yahweh that the Levites would live in and it would be um, a place where those serving God could live and could um, be, be community. This is what they found as they unearthed it. And these are called standing stones. And they found 10 of these standing stones, about 10 feet high, as they've discovered. And there's all kinds of other digs around there of things they discovered. The thing about standing stones is they were a Canaanite, but also other religions, they were a way of worshiping idols. You put up these high places, and so this became a holy place to worship idols. In fact, you see the basin in the middle there 
um, or an altar. That was a place of worship. And they, they found evidences of worship there. Unfortunately, and this is hard to hear, but even bones of infants and sometimes burned bones of infants. And so this is the kind of thing that was happening at Gezer, a place that was given by God to the children of Israel, and they were instructed to destroy the high places, destroy the standing stones. And here we have, alongside worship of God, worship of other local gods, worship of other deities. And we know from Israel's history that that was a problem. They didn't fully kick the Canaanites out. They didn't fully kick the false gods out. And, and so the idols were never fully eradicated. And it haunted them the rest of their history. It haunted them in Gezer and there's other places. We go to Arad and you, you have a, um, a mock-up of an altar that was in Jerusalem, which shouldn't have been there, right next to standing stones to Baal. Hey, if we're going to worship, let's worship them all and get it taken care of. And so that was what they struggled with. And good thing that's just them. We would never struggle with idols and mixing idols with our, our trust and faith in God. We can say, but, but I don't have any statues. Most of you don't go home and, and after church today, bow down to statues of Buddha or someone else in your home. But here's the thing, and here's what my goal is today, to have us begin to understand that idols aren't about the statues. But idols are about the heart and where our hearts lean and where our hearts go. And so we, as we talk about undistracted, we'll talk about idolatry. And, and this is a, a perfect time, I believe, to talk about it because when, when difficult times come, it tends to expose our idols. When things are removed from us, it tends to reveal whether they're an idol or not. And with the year and a half of the pandemic or however, 10 years, I don't know how long it's been now, We have struggled with idols as a people, as a church in America. And some of our idols have been revealed. What we can and can't live without. And and we have been distracted by that. And there's a deeper struggle. And I think it's exposing some deeper idols that we need to give to God. I'm reminded of 1 John 5.21. And I think we have this for the screen. And what we're going to do today is there's some major texts we're going to go to that will have you open your Bibles to. And then some of the, the... Cross-references we'll put on the screen. This is the end, the very last verse of 1 John. One of the last books written in the New Testament. Not the last, but one of the last ones written. And John culminates all his teaching about loving God and loving others and, and all the teaching he has given to the church with this verse. Little children, and that, that wasn't calling them like childish. This was an endearing term saying, my, my, my kids in the faith. Oh, my kids that I love, keep yourselves from idols. And that was his final word. Now, why was it his final word? Because I don't think the church he was dealing with was dealing with statues either. But they were dealing with idols of the heart and things that they held so dear that they had become distractions. And the word he uses there could be an image, could be an idol, but it also represented a representation in the mind an idol in the mind. And John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I think where he's going with that is, as you look at all his teaching, as you look at uh, really most of the teaching in the Bible about sin, it comes back to idolatry. And it comes back to loving something more than Jesus. And so John, at the end of it all, says, 
Keep yourselves from idols. Be on guard. Be looking. Identify them and kick them out. And get rid of them. And so that is a verse that we want to jump off of and say, okay, what does the Bible say about idols? Why, do, why is this the culminating verse of his teaching? Because it's important. Because it's vital. Because it ties everything together. And so today we'll, we'll answer the question, what is an idol? And then we'll look at, from Genesis to Revelation, an overview of what the Bible says about idols. So that'll be a whirlwind. We'll just, we'll just buzz through that. But I hope the weight of that sets into us. And then next week we'll, we'll explore a little bit more of general about idols, but then we'll start to distinguish between surface and deep idols. And you'll have to come next week or, or next time in the series um, to, to hear more about that. And then we'll take each of the four deep idols and take a week on them and say, this is not who God wants us to be. How do we take care of these things? And so what is an idol? And before I even go further, I need to say that I am indebted to and relying on a whole number of good men and women who have written on this subject. And um, as I've studied, there's times I want to use different quotes from people and different sayings. And so many of the authors are using the same sayings and, and, and like they, they reference each other. It's like, okay, where's the source to these things? And so I want you to know that I'm relying on authors. A lot of what I'm going to say is not original to me. But I don't want to try to recreate how they worded it. And so just know that there is some wonderful material if you want to do more research that, that you can study. Matt Chandler has done good work on this. Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods has done amazing work on this. Eric Geiger, David Paulson, um, Richard Keyes wrote an article called The Idol Factory in a book called No God But God. Um, John Calvin, just a name drop. Um, some of the things we're getting from there, Augustine, some of the things today. And so idols have been an issue for all of Christian history. And Christian leaders have been teaching on this. And so we're just going to continue in that vein and stand on their shoulders as we strive to love God most. I've already said the very first thing when we talk about what is an idol is talk about what is it not. And it's not just a graven image. It's not just an object it is something in our hearts, something that we hold dear. And it's not just something we like or love in this world, but something that we love more than other things. And we'll dig into that a little bit more. In Ezekiel 14.3, I don't know if I put this one on the screen. I did, okay. Ezekiel 14.3, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Now keep in mind, this is Old Testament. This is Ezekiel talking to the children of Israel um, and, and, and really, as most of the prophets did, dealing with idolatry there. And he's, he right here is reminding us this isn't about the idols. This isn't about the images of Baal. This isn't about some of those things. This is about taking idols into their hearts. And they set a stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. And he's tying idolatry with sin here and idolatry with iniquity. And, and finally, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? He goes on for like seven more verses in Ezekiel. So in your reading this week, Ezekiel 14 is a great place to start. But what it's telling us is idols that we deal with are idols of the mind, of the heart, of our desires. You know, and think about it, this makes sense. Even if you go back to the Greek gods, there was Aphrodite, right? The goddess of, I don't know if you guys know your Greek gods, goddess of beauty or love. Um, you had Ares, the god of war. Artemis, the goddess of fertility. 
and wealth, and there were many others. Now, we don't have images of those god and goddesses, but might we still worship the thing they stood for? Might we still struggling with worshiping beauty and elevating beauty and how we look above other things? Might we... Might we worship wealth, the accumulation of wealth, the hoarding of wealth? Might fertility become an issue? These things, we may not bow to Aphrodite, but someone struggling with issues of beauty and love might struggle with self-image and might struggle with eating disorders because it has become a God. Our gods are ideas. Our gods are desires. Our gods are gods of the heart. We may not bow to Artemis, but we bow to the career and the the allure of making money, even being willing to sacrifice our children at that altar. Our gods are gods of desire and of the heart. Tim Keller wrote, In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are, he said. And that quote just burned in my heart because they still are just as unfulfilling They still are just as damaging and take us to paths that will destroy us. And so a simple definition that I put in your notes is an idol is anything, anything, so not just a statue, anything that takes the place of God as ultimate in our worship, love, and lives. Let me repeat that. An idol is anything that takes the place of God as ultimate in our worship, love, and lives. Shorthand, it's a substitute for God. Anything that substitutes for God and His role and what only He can do is an idol in our lives. And really, we want to look at three different words. When, when, when we think of idolatry, I want you to think of three different words. Worship, love, and trust. Worship, love, and trust. And this morning, we'll take each of those. Turn with me to Romans 1. Romans 1, 21 to 25. As Paul begins to write to the church at Rome... He right from the start deals with idolatry as one of the topics and some of the, some of the definition of idolatry and what it has done to them. Romans chapter one. And in these verses, we're going to explore the worship part of idolatry. Worship means to show reverence to, to be in awe of, or to give undivided devotion to, to give complete devotion to. And so worship asks the question, what has my highest devotion in my life? Romans 1, 21 through 25. For although they knew God, and he's talking about those that have not become believers, those that haven't accepted God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And right from the start, an honoring of someone, setting them in a high position, giving thanks to him, showing gratitude, giving him credit for what he's done, These are terms that would fit under the category of worship, of taking something and worshiping them as responsible in your life, as as an acting agent in your life, being in awe of them. And it says they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, this is idolatry of the heart. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Talk about an exchange where you get the raw end of the deal. They exchanged 
the glory of the immortal God, something that is beyond imagination, beyond compare. And they exchanged it for images representing mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Definitely uh, representatives of, of statues there, but also other idols in their lives, as we'll see. But they were willing to chase those and be devoted to those and worship those more than the immortal God. Maybe you could argue because they could see it. We don't do well with things we don't see. But it's still idolatry. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then verse 25, underline this, highlight it. It's a key verse. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And the truth about God is He is the only one that is highest. He is the only one worthy of worship. He is the only infinite creator that can handle the weight of our dreams and aspirations and desires. And they exchanged all of that, the truth of God, for a lie. And idolatry is always a lie. It always overcommits and underdelivers. And they were willing to exchange it for a lie and worship uh, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so we see the lie and what they did is they worshiped and served. And those two are together here as part of worship. What we worship, we serve. That's part of devotion. And so they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. They couldn't get past what they could see to the real power behind it. And so worship includes the service. It includes the devotion. It's where we give our time, where we give our energy. Do we really want to worship the creature rather than the creator? Creation rather than the one who spoke it all into be with a word out of nothing? Oh, we've settled for too little. And we've settled for less. And we are the worse for it. Even when we add it in and add in worship of something else to worship of the Creator, it still is defying that there is no one higher. There is no one like our God. The wording here, worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, this should make us think back to the Ten Commandments and the First and Second Commandment. And especially the Second Commandment, you will have no graven images and you will not bow down or serve. Worship and serve. And so Paul here, as he writes to Rome, is saying those that are in the world that have not followed God, it goes back to the second commandment. They're worship and serving the, the wrong things. And so our question is, what do we worship? Maybe not kneel down and bow to in, in an explicit way, but what takes our thoughts? What takes our time? What takes our energy? And if you just had free time and you were sitting today and doing nothing other than falling asleep, what would you be thinking about? What would you be doing? What would you be focusing on? That starts to help us understand what we're devoted to, what we worship, what is most important in our lives. Maybe the question of what do we talk about most? I think deeper questions that begin to get to some of the deep idols, what am I willing to compromise for? 
See, with idols, with, with the worship of idols, whether it be power or success or relationships or sex or whatever it is, the, the power idols have is they allow us to compromise because the end always justifies the means of what we worship. And so if the end means I can get in this relationship, then I can compromise to get in the relationship because the relationship is my God. And if I get that, then it can't be wrong to get it. Do you see where I'm going with that? With money, if that is our God, then we're willing to compromise to, to have a good retirement, compromise to have a good career, because it doesn't matter how I get there if that's ultimate, if that's the most important thing. But it's not. And it doesn't deliver. And all of the things you see on the cow on your worship folder, which represents the golden calf, I know it's not gold, work with me. All of those things won't deliver, but they'll steal our worship and they'll steal our hearts. Idolatry at its heart is really just a worship disorder. Do we really want a disorder? It's a worship disorder. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. So I said, think of three words as we think of a definition of what idols are. Worship. What do we reverence? What do we serve? What do we devote ourselves to? Second word, love. And and these overlap a ton. But the second word is love. What has my highest affection? What has, what holds my heart? Who holds my heart? Could be a person. Could be a thing. I think oftentimes for, for us, the struggle is it could be a desire or a dream or an expectation. Those things hold our hearts fast and, and, and refuse to let go. And so what, you know, a, a question for, for what do I love when it comes to idolatry is what makes me truly happy? Or maybe what do I think would make me truly happy? If I just had that position, I'd be happy. No, that's an idol. If I just had kids, I'd be happy. And I know we, we struggled with wanting kids for many years, and that was a struggle, an idol we had to deal with monthly. If I just had kids, I'd be happy. If I just had X, if I just had that car, if I could just get out of this apartment, I'd be happy. And, and be careful, because we're dealing with love there. We're dealing with our hearts. We're dealing with what's going to capture our affections and our desires. Now, those are all surface idols that are all coming from deeper idols. And think about it. And I'm not picking on anyone in here. Think about new love. Okay? Relationships. When, when someone is like in a new relationship, that's all they think about. It's all they talk about. They have the silly grin on their face. It's, it's beautiful, but at the same time, it can become an idol really, really fast. When that becomes the most important thing. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, turn there with me. That's a key verse for this section. Because we see this as one of the great commands in the Old Testament. Jesus multiple times says this is the greatest command. And it's a command that deals with what we love. It's a command that fights idolatry and runs in the face of idolatry. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. And again, these verses, I pray, are not new. Deuteronomy 6 is part of the the law, part of God's word to Israel. 
Yahweh's word to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he deals with that there's not multiple gods. There's only one God. And it's a statement dealing with idolatry. And then catch the next one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And it's a statement of priority. So there are no other gods. And the God that is real wants to consume the entirety of our love. And in this verse, and it goes on then to say, teach them to your kids. Do you, do you catch some of the times to teach them? What does it say? When you sit down. You can talk. When you walk by the way. When you lie down. When you stand up. Now, what's he saying with that? Sort of, no matter what you do. Those things cover it. I mean, even if I just said either when you're lying down, sitting down, or standing up, I pretty much have your life covered. Right? And so he's saying, teach them. This is so important that this should be front of mind. Teach them on your foreheads. Teach them on, on your hands. This should be what we pass on to our kids to love God most. And nothing else takes the place of that. This is repeated to this day. By, by people following Judaism. How many of you have been to Wildwood? This sound familiar? This is sh- the Shema. And every day we repeat it because there is nothing more important than making sure the love of our heart is in the right place. This is about idolatry and fighting idolatry. Jesus is asked by a, a master of the law, what is the greatest commandment? This is where he goes. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first commandment, he says. And so, if we're to talk about idolatry, we've got to go back to to the instructions, to what Jesus said is the most instructions. It's about love. Every part of life should address this. Let me give you an example of this we see in the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in the overview a little bit. But think of Abraham. Abraham wanted a son, right? It, that was a desire. In their culture especially, you needed an heir. You needed a male heir to carry on the line. God had promised him through your seed. I will, it'll be as, like the sand of the sea. I will bless the nations. And no heir, right? No one. And they're getting old, and, and nature takes its course, and getting old is problematic with having kids. And, and so then, because, I would argue, because this is so important to him to have this child, what does he do? He compromises. And again, the compromise is because something else was his idol other than God and God's word. And so he compromises and, and with, his maids, with Sarah's maidservant, and Ishmael's born. But hey, the ends justify the means, but not with God. Not with God. And so that ended in disaster, and it was horrible. But finally, Sarah had a child through a miracle of God. Now, if you had wanted children for for decades, and then a son came, might there be a bit of devotion and love for that son? Yeah, it would have been so easy for that son to be everything to him. For that son to be his pride and joy and his life and his future and, and carry, that son would carry the weight of all of God's promises of what God expected. 
And so God wanted to deal with a potential idol in his life, with his deepest desire. And so God asked him to give his son up. And sometimes the way that we can identify idols in our life is the things we hold tightly to and don't want to give up. And God asked him to give his son up. And in Genesis 22, 2, God said to him, take your son and, and catch the description here, which is why I think he's dealing with an idol of the heart or a potential idol of the heart. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And so he piles on the phrases to say, I know that you love this boy more than anything else in this world. But let's see if you love him more than me. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. See, Abraham's affection had possibly become adoration and had possibly become an idol. A good thing might have become the ultimate thing, the main thing. And so there was a test. And in the test, Abraham obeyed. And Abraham took his son to the mountain and was going to sacrifice him, trusting God. And in verse 12, 10 verses later, God stopped it. And catch again what he says. He, being Yahweh, being God, said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. This was an issue of both worship and love. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And in that moment, Satan cringed and Yahweh cheered because Abraham passed the test and his heart was to give his deepest desire to God and trust God with it. I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What if God asked you to give up to Him the thing that is dearest in your life? Could you do it? That's where we talk about idols. That's where we talk about, has this become an ultimate thing for me? Has this become the most important thing? It would have been incredibly damaging for Abraham to hold on to a potential idol. It would have been damaging to the birth of the nation if if Isaac was Abraham's God. And I'm not saying they didn't struggle with that later. And and the the beginning stages, actually the, the entire stages of Israel, there are issues with idolatry and there are other issues that come up. But this was a key moment that shows us that idolatry is about loving something other than God. And the answer here, this wasn't even the end. Because God provided a sacrifice out of the bushes. Right? He provided the ram. When we give our love to Him, He provides and He takes care of that. Later, on the same mountain, He would provide a Savior to hang on the cross and provide for our sin and deal with our idolatry and say, I love you. Give your heart to me. Praise God that the answer to this is loving Jesus, seeing His work on the cross, seeing the work on the gospel. One other thought on this. 
It's interesting, throughout Scripture, idolatry and adultery are used together a lot. And I think it falls under this idea of the definition of what do we love most. And so idolatry is often spoken of as adultery, a love for the wrong things. See, God should be our true spouse, right? We're the bride of Christ as the church. But when we desire and delight in other things more than God, we are committing adultery. It's like, oh, oh, no, no, I would never do that. As we won't let go of things that we hold dear. As we love things more than Jesus. As we're happy with our five minutes talking about the Word each day so we can get on to the real things that matter. There's a a number of verses in Jeremiah that talk about it, but Hosea, I think, is a really um, picturesque example of idolatry and adultery and the connection there. Um, In Hosea 3.1, the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I'm not saying don't eat raisins here. The issue was chasing other gods. And he uses Hosea and his wife who has gone off and is with another man and loves another man. He says, that's a picture of what you do when you go after other gods. When you love something more than Jesus. How do we tell what we love? Typical things. What do we spend time on? What do we spend thoughts on? What do we spend energy on? What are we scared to lose? I mentioned, think of three words, worship, love, and trust. And I think you could argue that trust would go under worship because worship is who do we trust with our lives? Who is the ultimate that we are are devoted to? Um, But I'm separating devotion and trust a little bit. I think there's some nuances there that are worth talking about. But when we, when we have an idol in our lives, we're now trusting and relying on them to provide something for us, right? We were, and, and much as they did with their statues, you worship and you get rain for your crops. You worship this one and you get wealth or whatever it is. We can do the same thing with idols in our lives. What do we trust or who do we trust and rely on in our lives? Who do we trust to satisf- bring us satisfaction in life? To help us cope with life? What is essential? And once we get beyond coffee and ice cream, we start to think of differing things that are are actually things we hold to to try to cope and try to get through. Psalm 31, 3-7. And this psalm is worth reading this week as well. Um, for you are my rock and my fortress. For, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And so the psalmist here is talking about his trust in God and how God has come through with him and God is his rock and God is his fortress and no matter what happens, he can trust God. And then in the middle of this, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But I trust in the Lord. Do you get the contrast? The contrast is in people that are, are paying regard to or trusting idols for their refuge, trusting idols for what they need in life. And the psalmist's answer is, but I trust in the Lord. You can write down Isaiah 42, 16 and 17. That's another verse to, to read through, to think about this idea of idols and trusting. 
See, an idol is anything that we look to to give us what only God can give. Catch, catch that. Again, we're trying to define idolatry here, and I'm trying to help us understand every person in this room struggles with idolatry. An idol is anything we're looking to to give us what only God can give. It's trusting people or possessions or positions to do for you what only God can do. Maybe it's seeking, a, 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 having a spouse or looking to your spouse for significance and acceptance. And so you want them to respond to you certain ways and keep reaffirming you. They can't bear the weight of that. Because you're making them your God at that point. You're trusting them for something that only God can provide. When we start to think, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Those are all signs that we've, we've, we've fallen into the trust issue of idolatry. Idolatry is trusting in anything else above God, the God who made us. One author said, trying to, to define this idea of trust, an idol is something so essential you feel like your life is over if you lost it. That's so true. So true. And so idolatry, when we think of the definition of idolatry, we need to think of what do we worship, what do we love, what do we trust. And that helps us identify, okay, what things are replacing God or even coming to the same level of God. And and the issue here is what is ultimate. And and I want to sort of summarize those three with what is ultimate. Elevating something to the most important or highest priority is ultimate, right? So if I say the ultimate thing in my life is for the Dodgers to win another World Series. Number one, that's sort of a sad life. I I want the Dodgers to win a World Series, but if that's the ultimate thing in my life, you'd tell me, Ron, get a life. So ultimate is something that we elevate above all else, and when we do that with idols, it's just as silly as the example I just gave. Think back to Romans 1.15, the verse we started with. They worshipped and served the creature rather than creator. They elevated the wrong thing to ultimate. And a saying that, that I think fits idolatry, and this is not original to me, but I found it in like half a dozen people that are writing on this, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes the ultimate thing. Let me repeat that. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. Most idols don't start out looking like idols. Satan's smarter than that. He's more devious than that. But when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing and it's not God, then it's an idol. Is marriage good? Yeah. Can it be an idol? Yeah, when it becomes the ultimate thing. Is it good to work and provide? Yeah. What about when that becomes the ultimate thing and you're willing to compromise to do that? Then it's an idol. Good things become bad things when they become ultimate things. I think about that with career. I think about that with relationships. I think about that with money. Is money a good thing to have? If you want to eat, if you want a place to stay, You know, if you want to put gas in your car this week, but it could so easily become the ultimate thing in our life. And then it's an idol. See, nothing in creation can stand the weight 
of being the ultimate in our life. The ultimate source of anything in our life. Creation will always fall. The created that we worship will always fall. Family is good, but it's not ultimate. Providing is good, but it's not ultimate. Enjoying God's creation is good, but it's not ultimate. The love of another person is good, but it's not ultimate. So we need to think through what is ultimate in my life. We don't want these things to control us. One author said, an idol is anything or anyone other than God you can't survive without. Yeah. That's how we know something has risen to the ultimate in our lives. I put a quote in there from um, Dr. Lloyd Jones. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life. Anything that seems to me essential. An idol is anything by which I live, on which I depend. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy and my money. Some quick other thoughts to help us understand idolatry. And then we'll do a a five, ten minute survey of Scripture. Just some other things about idolatry. Idolatry is foundational to almost every other sin. Almost every other sin. Think of the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are no other gods, no graven images. The foundation of the Ten Commandments, the foundation of God's instruction to us is no idols. Don't trust in anything else other than Him. Sin is at its heart idolatry. All sin is. We love something more than God, and so we don't obey God. Idolatry is foundational. Second thing there is we have a propensity toward and are really good at creating idols. We have a propensity toward and are really good at creating idols. John Calvin is the one that said our hearts are like idol factories and a whole bunch of authors since then. We love things. We love things that make us happy. We love things that are important to us. But we struggle with loving God. So we need Jesus who dealt with sin, who gives us a new heart, and who breaks the chains of idolatry. We need him. So think for a minute. Think for a minute of where idolatry is seen in Scripture. And I want to end with this today, just a a whirlwind tour through Scripture. Because idolatry is seen from the first pages of the Bible, from the first sin, all the way to when sin is dealt with in Revelation. We start with Adam and Eve who loved the idea of the fruit and the idea of power more than God. The serpent said to her, God knows when you eat of this, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw and it was the delight to the eyes and the desire to make one wise. And so right from the start, they loved the idea of power more than God. Cain in his offering, the offering that wasn't accepted. And he he didn't put God first in that offering, either in form or in the heart of the offering. And it was an issue of, of worship, an issue of not worshiping God. 
Abraham and Isaac, which we talked about already, was dealing with the idolatry of family and of hopes and dreams. And so God confronted that by saying, are you willing to give this up? Jacob and Leah, Rebecca, if you read that story, it's a story of idolatry. The idols of beauty, of love, of relationships, of children, of family. And in Genesis twenty nine thirty two, you have just a, a verse that summarizes so much. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my re- affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she was relying on, on children to gain the love of her husband. Praise God, she eventually changed and said, I know my God loves me. But her idol was family. Her idol was her husband's love. Rebecca, later as they left home, she, she hid the household gods with her and took them. They were backups because she didn't trust Yahweh. But she trusted these gods. We already mentioned the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments says, You will have no other gods before me. You will not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything. Then a few chapters later, they made a golden calf because they couldn't handle not having something physical and visual to worship. And that's what the cow and the logo represents. A golden calf. And we may not make golden calves anymore, but we serve those things that are are written there if we're not careful. In Leviticus, we've done Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy, you shall have no other gods before me. In Deuteronomy 5, 6. In Deuteronomy 6, we already saw this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And he goes on to talk about idolatry specifically. Not to go after other gods. In Deuteronomy 11, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. We move ahead and Joshua takes the land at the end of that time where they kicked some out, but they didn't kick others out. We saw at Gezer that 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 wasn't taken care of. But the people at the end said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they made this statement trying to fight against idolatry. A covenant. Then we move to judges. And just about every judge was dealing with idolatry of some sort. Judges 8, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Book by book, we see idolatry as foundational, as a struggle. Every sin just about can go back to idolatry. Solomon struggled with idols, a heart that wasn't holy gods. In in 1 Kings it says, when he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Elijah, in what was one of the best confrontations between Yahweh and Baal on the mountaintop with with the altars, confronted and at the end said, the Lord he is God, the Lord he is God. Don't trust other things. In 2 Kings, we keep moving through the Scriptures and hopefully we see 
every book just about deals with idolatry of some sort. And in 2 Kings, where, where the, the fall of the northern kingdom is being predicted, Assyria is going to come in and take them out. It says, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord your God, their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Idolatry was the heart of the fall of Israel. Psalm 96, 4 and 5. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. This struggle is not new to us. This is the struggle of the human heart. This is why Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. Psalm 106, which was one of that I think would be a really harsh worship song to sing. Remember, these are songs. So maybe, what if we came to church next week and we sang, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Imagine putting that to music. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. But idolatry is a worship issue. We move forward to Ecclesiastes. Solomon tried everything. Every idol, nothing else satisfied. And so at the end, he said, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. Isaiah 42 deals with idols that God says he won't give his glory to another. Jeremiah over and over deals with idolatry. Do not go after other gods and serve or worship them. It provokes me to anger. Ezekiel, where we already talked, talked about idols of the heart and that idolatry comes from the heart. Are you feeling it? Just about every book of the Bible. Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, he makes an idol to himself. Self can be an idol. And in in chapter 4, he became a cow. And it was an issue of idolatry and worship. Jonah ran away because he worshipped the idol of vengeance and nationalism. And it says that in his prayer to God, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love as he began to realize he had other things he cared about more than God. Jesus reaffirmed the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart as we move to the New Testament. He talks about the idol of money when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The rich young ruler went away and ended up in hell because he couldn't give up his idol of money. We looked at Romans 1, a description of all unbelievers, that in their foolishness they exchanged the glory of God for things on this earth that we worship, desires. It's crazy. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes to the church at Corinth as he talks about not giving in to temptation, and he says, flee from idolatry. In 2 Corinthians He equates being unequally yoked with issues of idolatry. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Ephesians and Colossians both put covetousness alongside idolatry. In 1 Timothy 6.10, we see the love of money is idolatry. And finally, we get to the end. 1 John 5, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And Revelation where Ephesus, a church that was so doctrinally strong, had lost their first love. 
theology and religion can be an idol. And that was theirs. From the first pages to the last pages, idolatry is the human issue that Jesus came to pay for. Something else is on the throne other than Him. And so we come today to end with communion, the Lord's Supper together. And I know the subject of idols is a heavier subject, and and going through all the places throughout Scripture is a heavier topic. But don't despair. Don't despair because Jesus took care of idols on the cross. And He gave us the strength to love Him more, to serve Him more, to worship Him more, if we will trust Him. Because trying to do it on our own is also an idol. Independence is an idol. But listen to this out of Ezekiel, out of the Old Testament, looking forward to the work of Christ. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, which is talking about idols. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As heavy as this topic is, the weight of the beauty of Christ's work on the cross should come across too. Because it says, no matter how heavy idols are, no matter what the allure, I took care of it on the cross. That's what Jesus is saying. Follow me. Give your heart to me. I will give you a new heart of flesh. I will clean you. I will restore you. And that's the message of the cross. That's what we celebrate and remember with the Lord's Supper. So in a moment, we'll open our packets. And if you didn't get one, there's tables in the back, both in the gym and here, of the individual communion packets. But just as we begin to to come to the Lord's Supper, I want us to just bow our heads and close our eyes and reflect. And worship team can, can lead us in a song together. What idols do I struggle with in my life? What are areas, and, and every one of us in this room do, what areas in my life become more important to me than Jesus? Or maybe become ultimate to me, or maybe that I trust in more, or love more, or worship more. But then realize, Jesus loved us more. And Jesus gave everything for us. He first loved us so we would love Him. This isn't about try harder to get rid of idols. This is about Let's love Jesus more. Let's remember what he's done more. Let's celebrate what he's done more.